Numbers chapter 14, the final exam. I said the final exam and the student section just lifted their heads up. So they've seen God's faithfulness throughout their journey in uh, providing food for them by way of manna, providing water for them uh, by way of a miraculous tree thrown in the water to make the bitter water sweet, uh, water from a rock. Um, They were hungry. They were eager for meat. God gave them quail to the point that they were even getting sick. They were eating so much. God provided for them warmth through a pillar of fire by night and shade through a pillar of cloud by the day. He provided protection for them over their enemies and gave them victory in those military endeavors that they went through. God was determined to get his people to this place that we're going to read. God literally leads them to Kadesh. And as they're there at Kadesh, uh, Moses sends out some spies, 12 spies. And he tells them he wants them to spy out the land that they're about to inherit and bring back word to him so uh, so that they can move forward. And the spies are supposed to determine the, how good the land is, to, be, to make, a, make them aware of any enemies that were there. They were supposed to bring back a full-throated uh, report on all that was going on in the, the promised land. They were, the spies, the 12 spies, were gone for 40 days. And they come back with varying reports. I want you to see in chapter 13, I know I said 14, but I want you to look back at chapter 13, verse 26. It says, Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them, to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. These guys had grabbed grapes, a cluster of grapes, and they literally had to put it on a stick and carry it between two men. It was such a fruitful land. Then they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. Cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they spied, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight as we were in their sight. Notice chapter 14. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, if we had only died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should become victims? Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. So Moses and Aaron fell on their face before all the assembly of the congregation. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son 
who were among those who spied out the land tore their clothes. And they spoke to the congregation, to the children of Israel, saying, The land we passed to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, and he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. We'll stop in verse number 10. I say this was the final exam because up to this point, uh, they had been really enrolled in this school, this education, this spiritual education, where God was bringing them out as, as a slave people and bringing them into a new land to be a new people um, that he had made a covenant with. Remember, he made that covenant hundreds of years before he ever brought them out of Egypt. Really, the whole reason he brought them out of Egypt was not to just bring them out, but to bring them out for the purpose of bringing them in to the land that they were going to inherit. That is what God promised them. God made that promise to Abraham, their forefather. God reinstated, made sure they understood, restated that promise to Moses. No doubt the people understood every day we are on a journey to a land that God is going to give us. God had never given them any reason to ever doubt his faithfulness. Never once was there a moment in that span of time from Egypt, uh, from their exodus in Egypt to the time up to this point that God ever let them down. There was never a moment where their needs were not supplied. There was never a moment where they were without something that they needed in order to have. There should have been no doubt in their minds that everything up to that point had led to that moment. And here they are, literally standing at the city limits of their new property, their home that Jehovah God had promised them. They send the spies out, the spies come back, and then the test occurs. A major test happens. This is the final exam for God's people, the final exam for this generation. I want you to consider something, three things. One thing is a statement, and the last two things are questions. The first is the statement, is that tests are inevitable in the life of the Christian. You can't get around it. You and I are going to be tested. Remember I told you earlier on in this series that there's a difference between a test and a temptation. A temptation is something used by the enemy for the purpose of getting us to fail. But a test, on the other hand, is something used by God that is for the purpose of growing us. Sometimes in life, it's hard to determine whether it's a test or a temptation. The only way we can really determine if, if a decision we are making or a situation we're in is a test or a temptation is to know how are we handling it. Is this event causing me to seek God's will? Is this event drawing me closer to God? Am I learning something in this spiritual semester from this event? If we can come through that and realize that it did draw us to God, if we can walk through that and realize that it has helped grow us and mature us, and it, it has produced righteousness in us, then we can say that was a test and we passed. If we go through it and we realize that we failed that test, we didn't exercise faith, we didn't take God at His word, we weren't active in walking in obedience to God, we submitted or, or sacrificed or compromised some of our beliefs, we can look back and say, that was a test and I failed and it became 
a temptation. It did not draw me closer to God, but it brought me further away. First Peter chapter four, verse 12, he speaks of fiery trials to those who had endured such severe persecution. Those fiery trials, as you know, are what soften us and mold us and make us. You see, a lot of times we think that tests are something that God brings to punish us. But couldn't be further from the truth. Tests are not intended to punish us. They're actually intended to provide for us. They're intended to actually prepare us for even greater blessings. We don't have to look further than right here. The spies come back. Ten of those spies give a bad report. They dishearten the people of God. While two of those spies, Caleb and Joshua, stand up and say, no, that's not right. Yes, the enemies are strong, but God's stronger is what they were saying. What Caleb and Joshua was saying was absolutely 100% different than what the ten were. Of course, they were outnumbered. I want you to think about something interesting in this, this uh, line, this historical line of the Israelites, at least when they, from the moment they were in bondage when the plagues began on Egypt. Up until this point. And I want you to think about how this may apply to your life because this can be a great determination in where you are as far as your level of maturity in your spiritual progress. Most, not all, but nearly all of the lessons of faith that the Israelites have learned up to this point have all been in a passive setting. Let me say that again. Nearly all of the lessons of faith that the Israelites have learned up to this point have been learned in a passive setting. And what I mean is this. The Israelites cried out and God provided. They were thirsty. God gave them water. They were hungry. God gave them manna. They desired meat. God brought quail. They had enemies. God acted and defeated them. This was a situation where their lessons of God's faithfulness were learned in a more passive setting. They didn't have to do anything other than cry out to God in order for him to respond. And I told you, not all of them, but nearly all of them were that way. From the time the plagues began in Egypt to the time of right now, there are only really a couple incidences I can think of where it was, it was opposite. You see, if before it was in a passive setting where they cried out their need to God and God answered it, it now switches. This final exam that the Israelites were going through was not to be learned in a passive setting. They were to believe that God was going to get them there. They had to believe that God had made a promise and was going to see it through. If you look at it like this, before in the passive setting, they would cry out and God would act. In this situation, it's flipped. God spoke and it was time for them to act on what he said. It was an active Faith, it was something they were to take what he said, believe it, and employ it in their lives. They were to have responded in the active way that Caleb and Joshua did. They said, God's got this. God has got this. Can you imagine the frustration in those two? Yes, they saw the size of the enemies, but they knew that those enemies were not greater than the size of their God. And they cry out and they rebut the men who are coming with the negative report. The only other time, off the top of my head, the only other time I can think where there was a real active learning where God spoke and they had to do what he said 
was the Passover. God made a way for them to be able for the, the, the angel of death, the plague to pass over his people. And that was when they took the lamb without blemish or spot and they killed it and they placed the blood up on the doorposts and the panels. And the angel was going to see that and pass over them and, and leave them alone. And that's exactly what happened. So if you think about it, the two major events in the Israelites history up to this point. Or they had to actively trust was when he got them out of bondage and when he was bringing them into the promised land. We often love the lessons we learn in the passive setting, don't we? We love to be able to cry out to God and say, God, I need this, and then he provides it. We love to be able to cry out to God with our concerns and our cares and and our wants, and be able to see him in his own miraculous way, be able to provide that. And there's nothing wrong with those lessons. But there comes a time where we as believers move from learning in a passive setting to learning in an active setting. To be able to say, God, I know what you said in your word, and I'm going to believe it even if I don't see it. God, I, I know what your word says in regards to how I'm supposed to conduct myself as a father. And I'm going to do it. I know what your word says about how I'm supposed to conduct myself as an employee. God, I know what your word says about how I'm to conduct my finances and to, and to place you above all, that everything is yours, and, and I'm going to be a good steward with that 10% that you've given to me. Or, or God, I know that there are relationships that need reconciled. I know I need to be restored to my spouse. I know that's what your word says, and I'm going to actively employ the truth, the promises. I'm going to hold on to those and believe those. That's active faith. We love to stay in the lessons of passive faith lessons, but what God is calling us to is to be able to move, not just from those lessons of passive faith, but to be able to learn in an active setting to take God at his word. God records in chapter 14, verse 22, the people had tested him 10 times. God kept a record of it. 10 times in God's anger with them. He says 10 times they've, Put me to the test, even though there was never reason to test God ten times. Here's the big question this morning. Number two, the first of two questions. How do we listen? Who do we listen to in life's decisions? This is really important. There's no shortage of advice out there. Just look at Facebook. My goodness. Uh, just just if you don't believe me. Just post, post a Facebook status, okay? Put, put on Facebook, put, uh, I'm really looking for, I'm looking for, what, what, what is the meaning of life? How can I find real peace and satisfaction in life? Now, some of your close friends will probably think that you've left the faith. But there'll be a fair amount that will give you every, every type of advice from A to Z. You post any kind of question and you leave it up there for a survey among your friends, you're going to get any, you're going to get a whole spectrum of things that you should do. When we're, talk, when we're coming to those major life decisions, we often refer to other people. We might call our parents or might call our best friend or, or, or might call our pastor or deacon or who knows, the people that we may reach out to. But we have to be very careful about something. Who are those people that we are trusting to give us good advice are they solid in their life you see there were two very different responses that came i want you to notice the 10 first 
their negative words, their negative appeal to the Israelites overshadowed God's promise. The ten were looking at it from human standpoint. They were looking to say, okay, we're just pretty much a group of slaves. Um, sure, we have some weapons, and, and sure, we have some tools from brick building and, and from laying mortar and all that. Sure, we have some of that, but these guys are huge. I mean, they rattle off literally the, the, the hall of fame for Israel's enemies at the time. They, they say they're all here. They're, they're, some are in the mountains and some are down in the valley. There's not a part of this property that our enemies aren't there, and they're big. So those ten guys come back and they say there's no way we can do it because they're looking from man's perspective. They're getting man's advice. Those ten men were appealing to the very base nature of man. They were appealing to their fears. We shouldn't go, they say. Shouldn't go, we've seen it. But yet the two, Caleb and Joshua, come back with a vastly different view of the situation. They say, no, God has got this. Caleb and Joshua make sure they know the only thing that's going to hinder success in this is if we're not right with God. Isn't it awesome? When you find the negative words of the ten, it's followed up with a rebuttal from the two. They would not allow that negative talk to go on. They would not allow an answer. They would not allow there to be no response or silence after those people said no, to the point that they almost lost their lives. In fact, had God not stepped in, they probably would have. If you notice in verse 10, all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Here they are dragging Caleb and Joshua out. They're getting their stones ready. They're digging the holes. They're getting ready to stone these guys with stones. And all of a sudden, God shows up. God literally saved the life of those men who were preaching and teaching that good report. You know those people, don't you? I hope you do. I hope you know those people that love you enough and love God enough to tell you the truth. Those people that are willing to give you advice, not based off of what Oprah said, not based off of a New York Times bestseller, not based off of philosophy, or ideologies that might change and blow around with the wind, but somebody that loves you enough to be able to tell you the truth that this is what God's Word says. Guys, when we can find those people, and when we are those people, man, do you know what we do? We're able to look at insurmountable odds. And we're able to say, I don't know what the doctor says, I don't know what the word says, what the world says, but I know what the Word says. We're able to look at other parents and say, you know what, you do your thing, but this is what God has told me in his word to do. It provides, it provides protection, it provides blessing, it provides a way in this life that is solid and stable. I would consider Caleb and Joshua to be boat rockers. You know those people, don't you? When you're all gloom and doom and they're all telling you the best is yet to come, you know those guys. Always walking around with this joy in their heart. Always believing that God can do all things, right? Living in God's best always requires active faith. I want you to think about this for a minute. Living in God's best always requires active faith. You see, sometimes in our life, we may believe a lie of the enemy. 
we may think, well, there's God's best and then there's, you know, some other okay stuff. There's various levels of God's best. But really, if you think about it, for the Israelites, there wasn't. There were only two options. There was God's best and wandering. Wouldn't that be awesome if we saw life like that? If we saw life as, you know what, I want God's best in my home. I want God's best in my marriage. I want God's best in my single life. I want God's best in this generation where I'm a widow or this season as a widow. I want God's best. I want to walk in his obedience. If we saw it as God's best or fruitless wandering, I would hope that we would always want God's best in our life. I want you to see this thought, what happens When we're talking about listening to life's decisions, I know I have framed this as though, who do you listen to? But I want you to think for a moment about who, what do what kind of advice do you give? Are you that kind of person that other people go to looking for answers? When they're standing at that crossroads and they need some advice, what kind of advice do you give them? Do you give them advice that lines up with the word of God? That calls them to trust? That calls them to believe in the written, inspired, inerrant word of God? Do you lead them to Christ? Or do you come back with a message much, much like those men that based on our own, our own strength, we can't do it? Do you come back? And I'm not saying give people uh, unrealistic hope. I'm telling, them, I'm telling you about giving them a biblical hope founded on the word of God because let me remind you of something God took those 10 men that brought back that negative report he took those 10 men that disheartened the Israelites that stood in contrast to his promises those men who repeated the negative information he took those 10 men and killed them with a plague but those two men who bet their life on the truth of God were the only two men, the only two men from that generation to be allowed to go into the promised land. Your words matter. I assure you there are people who are looking to you for advice. We must be very, very cautious on the words we use. Do we direct them to the word of God or do we fill them with worthless advice that does not promise to lead them to truth. I want you to see this third thing. It's actually the second question. How did God respond to their failure of faith? It would be easy to say, it would be an understatement to say he was angry. Because once again, he comes to Moses and he says, Moses... I'm going to blow my nose and wipe out every one of them. That's, except you, Moses. I mean, that's pretty common. When when God would get angry at his people over their their lack of faith or their, their constant testing him, when God would get upset that they were not learning the lessons of faith or walking in direct disobedience to them, literally, God would say, I'm going to wipe them all out, Moses, and I'm going to start over with a new people made from you. That way, God could still keep his covenant promise with his people. 
And every time Moses would say, no, 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 God, no, 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 don't do that. I want you to, you need to, be, you need to forgive them. You need to relent from what you're thinking. You need, to, you need to continue. What would the Egyptians say? What would all the other nations say that have seen you do such great things? So this happens again. God says, I'm going to wipe them out. Moses says, no, no, don't do that. And I want you to think about something. God tells them, for each of the 40 days that those spies were spying out that land, I'm going to make you, this generation, he says, wander in the wilderness one year for every day they were spying out the land. God says, not one from that generation, 20 years and older, will see the promised land. You said that I was going to kill your children out in the middle of the wilderness. Well, your bodies are going to lay in the wilderness and your children are going to go into the promised land. Guys, think about this with me for a moment. God just said. No one is going in the promised land for 40 years. You know what that tells me? God was not in a hurry. To rush them into that land. I can't find a moment in the Bible where God has ever been in a hurry. I can't find a moment in the Bible where God was ever needed to be in a hurry. He always has the perfect timeline. You know, it goes back to this idea that God wasn't con as concerned of when they went into the promised land. He was more concerned on how they went into the promised land. Remember me saying that God is more concerned with our spiritual state than our real estate? That could not be any more true than what we see right here with the Israelites. God says, man, we've been moving here from Egypt. We've been making pretty good time. We've been, we've been covering some pretty good ground. And now, you know what? I want to have you guys wander out here for 40 years. God was more concerned. God, guys, you want to see the love of God? I mean, in this decision... The love of God is dripping off of the page. God had every right to wipe those, those people off the face of the earth. Every one of them. But Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. Had he wiped them off, we still could have looked at what they'd done and said, well, they should have got it at the golden calf. We could look at that and say, God is absolutely justified after all he did for them. He was totally justified in, in, in opening up the earth and allowing it to swallow them, but he didn't. Do you want to see how much God loved them? You want to see when the psalmist says, God, your mercy is everlasting. You want to see what he means? God loved them so much that he was not willing to let them go into the promised land unprepared. And he loved them too much to let them go back to Egypt. He couldn't allow them to enter in to God's best unprepared. I mean, trusting God to open the door, to give me the key on the new house in this sense. That's a vital lesson. 
They had to be able to move from learning in a passive sense to learning in an active sense. And they never learned that lesson at that stage. And God loved them too much to swing open the door wide and let them go in there unprepared in the school of faith. God only knows what would have happened down the road. There had to come a time where they owned their own faith. They believed. They took the steps. They were willing to trust God in what He said. And He loved them too much to let them go in unprepared. And He loved them too too much to let them go back to Egypt. That's what they wanted to do. Let us select a leader and he'll take us back to Egypt. God nicks that where it was. He was not going to let them enter back into Egypt even if they tried. He loved them too much to let them be slaves again. So what did he do? He had them wander in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 years. And before you think, that it was bad. Again, I say the love of God is dripping off of these pages. Because God led those people, every one of them. He protected them when there were battles. He fed them when they were hungry. He gave them water when they were thirsty. God even made it, the book of Deuteronomy says, God made it so that their clothes never even wore out. Who were they? They were people who by and large, 99.999% of them didn't trust him. And yet, what does he do to those who failed in the school of faith? Well, let's just say he holds them back for a few years. Until the last one was dead. Until the last one of that generation died. Again, I say, you know that the last one holding on probably didn't have a lot of friends. They were pretty eager for him to keel over so they could get on in. Probably didn't get much EMT help, I would say. Sad. God, where sin abounded grace did abound much more these people that god could have just turned over to the elements he could have just removed his hand and said all right you don't trust me caleb joshua moses aaron you guys come over here you bring your families over here and turn your backs on everybody else i promise you they wouldn't have lasted a moment were it not for god but that's not how god works now, friends, let me tell you something. You and I are all failures in a moral sense. We've all come to tests in our life where we should have done the right thing and we didn't. We had on one hand God's very best, walking in obedience to his word, decisions that we knew we needed to make, and yet, for whatever reason, we compromised. We settled. And you know, maybe, maybe in your mind, you've just kind of given up. Maybe like those Israelites, you're just, all right, I'm just going to wander around in the desert. Not really have a destination. I'm just going to stay here till I die. Let me, let me tell you something. If God was so faithful to his people in the days of judgment, how much more faithful is he today in the days of grace? You know, you may have consequences on your life for the decision you've made. Consequences that were of your own doing. 
If you're wandering in the desert, I promise you, it's not God's fault, it's yours. It's mine. If God was so good to them, how much more good is he for us today? We may have consequences. But the good news is, God is graceful. He is merciful. He wants his children to succeed. He wants us to live lives that are in stark contrast to the lost world. Every day should be a challenge to us as believers who are citizens of heaven living in a fallen world. Every day should be, we should feel like a salmon swimming upstream. Every day we should be charging against the current. Every day we should see our light growing brighter as the world grows darker. Every day we are forced to make a decision to live for God's best, to trust his promises or not. I don't know. I don't know where you are. But I do know this. God wants us to look at every decision through the lens of his word. He wants us to look at his, our families, our marriages, our business dealings. He wants us to look at those through the foundation of his word, through that lens. He wants us to choose what is right. God wants to bless us. The next message in this series is how they get in. Homecoming. One of the reasons the Israelites didn't want to go in was because the cities were fortified. Tall walls. You know where God takes them? To Jericho. One of the tallest fortified cities around. You may think that God will give up on your education, but He won't. He is, he is so... He believes that the lessons we need to learn are so important. He won't give up. God will never give up on you. Will you give up on him?